Well, this remnant series is a game changer, and you might be wondering, why are you calling a series on the Sermon on the Mount remnant? It's because the word remnant in the scriptures is symbolic for the people of God who remain in the minority. There's a remnant of Israel wherever they go who's staying faithful to God, even when the people of God are unfaithful to God. So if you're a Christian, and you'll see this in the sermon today, you'll always be in the minority. It'll never be a universal popular thing to be a follower of Jesus until we are in the kingdom of God living in heaven forever and ever. And that's where our eyes are fixed, by the way. This is your weekly reminder that heaven is not a place where we float like clouds as angels because we're not angels. We're human beings. You're going to have a life. You're going to have a place to live. You're going to have friends. You're going to have a purpose. Heaven is a real place lit up by a real Savior. And if you're in Christ, you're going to live there forever. And so our eyes are on there, but until we're there, the people of God will always exist as a remnant in this world. And so within the culture that we live in, we are definitely a minority because our culture is championing lies, championing things that are of everything except the Holy Spirit. But here's what we're noticing too. You can also be in the remnant and exist within the people of God. And so the temptation for us at our size and with seven years in together as a church, the temptation is to make this about bringing in more people and expanding wider and wider. But the danger of that is that we do that and we don't clarify what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus. And here's what happens over time. The remnant of God is drowned out by the masses. So what we want to do instead is invite the masses to be a part of the remnant. We want it to be normal at our church for people to go crazy in their private prayer life. We want it to be normal in our church for people to come in worshiping Jesus, believing that he is the better option for their lives than anything they could give their life to. We want it to be normal for people to have faces that are glowing with the glory of God. And no, life is not easy, but we are resilient disciples who are willing to face whatever because our treasure is in Jesus. That's not the message for special Christians. That's the message for Christians. So here's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's Jesus on the side of a mountain with a massive group of people in front of him. But who does he speak to? He teaches his disciples and he invites the masses to listen in. Here's what we're going to do at ACC. We're going to preach to the remnant and believe that people as they listen in are going to go, wait a second, this is actually real. This is actually something I can give my life to. This is actually worth sacrificing for. Jesus is the center of my life. And the whole series has been under the umbrella of this prayer. God, would you transform us from being consumers of Jesus' merit to being disciples of Jesus' way? This is what we're believing for. First of all, it's awesome to be a consumer of Jesus' merit. We're not negating forgiveness. But if forgiveness in Jesus is all that you ever have in your relationship with God, you have settled and stopped short of the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. There's so much more. So it's awesome to come to God and go, the blood of Jesus has set me free from every sin and stain that used to hold me back. And that's so true. And that needs to be preached. Let me just remind you today, if you hesitated during worship earlier, because all you thought about was what you did this week, or all you thought about was what you did last month, here's what God sees when he sees you if you are in Christ, the blood of Jesus. And as a covering over your life, just like the Passover lamb was a covering over the people of God, and that angel had no way of taking the life of the firstborn of those homes, you need to know this. If the blood of Jesus is on the doorframe of your heart, God is not mad at you, God has forgiven you, and God is drawing you into a loving relationship with him. Today is your day to repent and turn and go back to Jesus where you should have been all along, and you need to know nothing's stopping you from doing that. But for so many of us, that's our whole relationship with God. Leaving him and coming back, leaving him and coming back, leaving him and coming back. 
But what it means to be a disciple is to go, hold on, I've been forgiven so that I can walk as a member of the kingdom of God and live in a new way. So the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has diagnosed the human condition and said, my kingdom is an eternal kingdom where I'm not just inviting people to become converts and consumers. I'm inviting people to surrender everything to become disciples. And when you become a disciple of Jesus, you go, my whole life exists to follow you. And so today, we get to the end of this sermon. And it is not a soft ending. It's not like a pretty landing where Jesus gets to the end and the band's coming up and everything just feels right in a given moment. No, it's harsh. What we're going to read is, I would say, some of the most scary verses in the whole Bible. But we're doing this because we actually believe Jesus was telling the truth in the Sermon on the Mount. And he actually expects us to apply this word to our lives. So if you have your Bible in here or in the lobby, hold it up. Hold it up. Come on. Hold them up high. You can tell people are visiting this week. Okay, hold them up. Hold them up high. Okay. Keep your Bible up if you don't even care about yesterday because it's just better to be from Auburn, Alabama. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. God loves everybody. Somehow. Matthew Hey, how about the Aggies? Yeah. There you go. I love that we had an Aggie preach last week. I wish he was here right now. Just to, how was Pastor Brad Jones last Sunday? Was that not powerful? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. We're going to pick up where he left off last week. It was cool for me last week because I got to experience church at our Birmingham location, which I've heard so many good things about, and I've met with people there, but I've never actually just gone and attended a church service there. Y'all, it was crazy. It 350 people in Homewood. Yeah, insane. And I mean, they're not there just sitting in seats watching what we're doing in this room. They are leaned in. Like everything that's being said, they're responding to. God was moving. I was in tears. People weren't, I mean, it was crazy what God was doing in that room. And no, we didn't have that as a plan for where our church was going. We're just seeing God do something so special and so significant. So when Brad left off last week, he talked about asking and seeking and knocking, and it ended right there with Jesus summing up the law and the prophets with love your neighbor as yourself like he always does. And then he turns the corner toward his conclusion. And his conclusion contains four warnings that should scare the life out of you. Christian or non-Christian, been in church your whole life or this is your first time, this is how the Lord and Savior of the universe decided to end his most famous, well-known sermon. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Wow. End of sermon. And end of part one of five of Matthew. It's just a little Bible fact for everybody like me who likes to geek out on random Bible things. Matthew is cut into five sections. Each one ends with when Jesus had finished saying these things. So you can cut Matthew evenly into five sections. The reason why he does that is numerically it's supposed to remind you of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's supposed to remind you that in Deuteronomy, Moses made a speech in five sections. He's establishing Jesus as a king coming to claim a new covenant and invite the people of God into a new era, not where he does away with the Old Testament, not where he does away with people like Moses, but where he fulfills it and invites us into the eternal kingdom that we belong to. And then it says, the crowds were amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority. You know why Jesus taught as one who had authority? Because he was under authority. People think the key to having power and having influence is gaining a level of authority, but it's actually learning to delight under the authority of God that leads to true influence. And the crowds are amazed, and I would say they don't really know what to do with what they just heard at the end. Here's what you just heard Jesus say at the very end with four explicit warnings. He's like, okay, therefore, in light of all this, I'm wrapping up now. The only thing I want you to do with this whole sermon is do it. And so you have a choice. You can either take everything you have heard from what I just said and build your life on it. And if you do that, you're smart, by the way. When Jesus talks about the wise builder built his house on the rock, that word is a word for intelligent. He goes, you get it if you get the fact that you're supposed to build your life on this. But if you leave today and you just hear everything I said, and maybe you're amazed by it, maybe you're astonished by it, maybe it's something you're gonna digest and think about and have a study about, but if that's all you do is look at it and digest it intellectually, but you never actually put it into practice, you are like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. And when the rains come and the winds blow, that house, that life falls apart. Jesus is ending, mandating a decision. And it's a decision for everybody. Because he knows 2,000 years ago, the tendency of people listening to him is to take what he said and just hear what he said. 2,000 years ago, Jews were impressed by miracles and Greeks were impressed by wisdom. Jesus brought both. But he wants them both to know, it doesn't matter how many miracles you see and it doesn't matter how wise my preaching is. 
The result must be a lifestyle of obedience, and you choose. And by the way, this decision that you're going to make, whether you're actually going to use the word that your life should be built on or you're going to do away with the word, this is the most important decision of your life. If you need a title for this sermon, it's called The Call to Discipleship. The Call to Discipleship. Go ahead and look at somebody next to you and say, God is calling you. God is calling you. It'll feel good to say. Lobby, participate as well. Jesus is leaving no room for anyone to walk away and not make a decision. Indecision is a decision in your spiritual life, by the way. He's going, it's one or the other. Now, with that in mind, I did some research on decisions this week, and I found, psychologists have found, that the average American makes 35,000 decisions a day. Did you know that? Watch, this is crazy. Over half are about food. Isn't that crazy? The mental battle that we are fighting is over what we are actually going to eat. And I know if you're like me, it's the same thing every week. It's just a matter of maneuvering and fighting through the people in your friend group or the people in your family to end up ordering the thing that you actually wanted at the beginning, which is complicated when your wife is pregnant, by the way, because you start going, wait, what? You haven't told me to go there since, oh, the last child. And uh, it's like, okay, the the appetite gets complicated. But 35,000 decisions a day comes out to 245,000 decisions a week, which is almost 13 million a year. Crazy. If you multiply it by the average lifespan of the average American, it equals almost exactly 1 billion decisions in a lifetime for a human being in the United States of America. 1 billion decisions. In the same study, they found that Americans consider of all of those decisions two to be the most important far and above any other decisions they have. And it's kind of a tie for first. It's not like there's one and two. The two decisions that Americans deemed as this is what your life is actually all about. Like this is what's going to build your life. Those two decisions are who you marry and what you do for your career. And that's why if you're in a certain age group here today, that's why you're stressed out. Just by the way, you're like, why am I so anxious all the time? Because you're about to make those two and you're freaking out because the vast majority of our culture says those are the most important decisions you will ever make and they are the building blocks for how you are going to experience life now and forever the rest of your life. There's a TV show all about this. Corey and I have been watching it. No one at the 8 a.m. watches it, so I'm really nervous to bring it up. Is anyone watching this new show, Ordinary Joe? Anybody at all? This is embarrassing. I cannot believe this. There's over a thousand people here and we are the only ones. Not for long. You need, to look, you need to watch this show. By the way, every time I endorse a show, I'm not endorsing every word that is said or every message that is sent. Don't send me any more emails about the fact that I talked about Harry Potter one time. Like I'm not, I'm not up here every time I talk about something going, this is good for your brain and soul. It's just an illustration. It's all it is. <laughs> See how much I'm overreacting to how easily offended people are? It's like... Some of you are offended by the fact that I said people are easily offended. And it's like, it's a trap to live in 2021 as a preacher. That was a Star Wars reference. Okay. Ordinary Joe. Ordinary Joe, you guys are missing out. This is a good show. And just when I say that, this week's probably going to have all kind of words and explicit content. And I'll be like, no, but it's an awesome show. Here's the thing. This guy, it's about a guy named Joe. Yeah. Following. He... This is so great, convincing all of them. He, so he graduates from college, and the moment he walks out of his college graduation, he essentially has a choice in front of him where he can go down three different roads, and each road hinges upon those two decisions I talked about. 
who he's going to marry, and what career he's going to chase. This way is a girl he's been with for a long time and with a sure career path because her dad is the head of a hospital, so he's got a career in medicine set in front of him, and he's got a future with her. He knows her, kind of the comfortable choice. If he goes this other route, there's this new girl who they've kind of been flirting, they've kind of got a little thing going, and it's like, man, this feels new, start of something new, like, I'm, I'm liking this, and it would allow him to express maybe a more creative side of himself that he hasn't expressed much in going into music. But then on the other side, there's his whole family, there's his mom, there's some aunts and uncles, and he can go there and go with neither of the girls, and he can go into a career in law enforcement because that's what his dad did. And the whole show, watch this, y'all, the whole show is like 10, 15 years later, and it's the constant back and forth of the future realities that happen on the basis of all three decisions. Mind blown. Awesome show, okay? And so all it is is it just goes back and forth of, okay, this is how things ended up with, with children, with career. These are the unique challenges that come from this, but it all hinged on this is your life with this girl down this career. This is your life with this girl and this career, and this is your life with neither girl and this career. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And every single life, it's like, wow, that's awesome about this reality, but that's a challenge and that's so sad. And we are absolutely in love with this show and you need to watch it. The only reason why I'm bringing this up though is to tell you our culture can see it. And it's a principle that you need to get in any, and every, in any and every season of your life. It's this. Decisions create futures. Decisions create futures. Just like the physical material of something in front of you is made up of the materials that were built into it, your life right now is the culmination of every decision that you've made so far. Decisions create futures. Now here's where Jesus comes in at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to argue today based on what he said that the most important decision of your life is not who you marry and it's not what you do for a career. Those are really important decisions. You need to be careful. You need to be prayed up, particularly on the first one, because they do impact your future. But Jesus is saying the decision that will define whether or not your life sustains and flourishes or whether or not your life falls apart is this decision. Will you be my disciple? Are you going to take the word of God? And when Jesus says these words of mine, yes, he's talking about the sermon, but you need to know Jesus is the living and breathing word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. So I believe the whole Bible is an opportunity to have an encounter with the son of God. And the Bible is not intended to be a collection of historical facts that you study sometimes at a study that you do in a given night. The Bible is intended to be the rock solid foundation that your whole life leans on. And I'm telling you, this is the only foundation you have that can hold the weight of your life. Jesus is going, if you lean in any other direction, eventually a storm's going to come. And that storm could either be a bad collection of circumstances, or I believe it could be final judgment. But no matter what, Jesus is literally making the claim, you are invited to be my disciple. There is nothing more important than this. What do you want to do? And my whole story of following Jesus for the past 20 years goes back to believing that the word of God can hold the weight of my life. I remember listening to Francis Chan in college at a conference and him leaning on a stand and leaning on the word of God at a room of thousands of college students and going, this is all you have that can hold the weight of your life. 
And the call to discipleship that I want to invite us to is not to look back with regret if you're further down the road or look forward with fear if you've got a long road ahead of you. My call today is to invite us into this. The most important decision of your life is not the one time you decided to be a disciple or the one time you decided to pray a prayer when you were little. The most important decision of your life is today because the call to discipleship is daily taking up your cross to follow him. You have the most important decision of your life right in front of you in this moment today. Am I gonna build my life on what's true and real and actually there, or am I going to be deceived and fall for a lie? He doesn't leave any in between. He doesn't leave room to go, yeah, well, you're just processing for a little while and I get that. He is point blank in the most blunt way saying, your life will fall apart without me or it will sustain because of me. And it's one or the other, what do you wanna do? That is the call to discipleship. And to do this, he's gonna draw a dividing line on four different grounds. And each one is, I think, equally as scary to read. We'll put those on the screen right now. This is what he did. He said, hey, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate. True prophets, false prophets. True disciples, false disciples. Wise builders and foolish builders. You are either 100% on that side or 100% on that side. And you get to choose right now, sermon over. So what I wanna do, I read through it quickly. I wanna study this and apply it to our lives. There's no magic to the words that I am saying. It is just looking at the living and breathing word of God and going, what does this mean for our lives? Y'all wanna do that? Y'all wanna have a little Bible study at church? Go to verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Translation, it's hard to follow Jesus. And you will always somehow be in the minority. We are believing for revival all over the world and people are coming to know Jesus. But you need to know what's happening here is Jesus is going, where you see a lot of people thinking they're finding life, they're actually on a broad road that leads to destruction. And they're not on that road because they want to be destroyed, they're on that road because they think it leads to life. And every time you make this decision, you need to know the road that looks like sacrifice, the road that looks like it's going to be harder, the road that looks like faithfulness is more boring than getting to do whatever I want, the road that looks like, why would I want to read my Bible again, the road that looks like sacrifice is actually the road that is ultimately going to end up in life. And you get to choose. Do you want the narrow way? And by the way, only a few find it. So don't be surprised if you start going further in your faith, if it isolates you instead of includes you from a lot of groups. Don't be surprised if persecution increases. Don't be surprised if you get made fun of. Don't be surprised if weird things start happening against your life that you can't even explain. You're just going, wait, I feel like I, I have some level of opposition. It's because you're on the narrow road. Wait, everything's just going well for me and I'm just kind of coasting through life and I don't really sacrifice and I don't really feel a lot of tension and I, watch out. Watch out. That, that, I think that's his very next word, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That's why I wore black today. I did, I did not want to be wearing sheep's clothing. Um, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. What you come to believe about Jesus will be framed in large part by the voices who you allow to tell you who Jesus is. You need to be very careful who you allow to inform you about the word of God. 
Now, this is very awkward for me to preach this because this entire section in this room is about one person, and it's the person talking right now. If you're visiting and you're the pastor of a church, welcome. We're glad you're here. It's about you too. Just want to remind you that we're judged more harshly for the way we live our lives because of this calling. Isn't that great? Um, but, but Jesus is saying, hey, hey, you need to watch out because there's people telling the truth and there's people who will lie to you, but they won't seem like they're lying to you. They seem like they're telling you the truth. And the way I've interpreted these verses for a long time is I thought it meant look at the fruit. So for a long time, it's been easy to legitimize certain pastors or preachers by the numerical success of their ministry because we assume that that's what fruit is. They go, you can't deny the fruit, you can't deny the fruit. But then again, all of us have heard stories of pastors of these massive ministries and people who have been entrusted with a lot, who everything falls apart because something was going on inwardly that nobody else saw. And you go, wait, the fruit didn't legitimize the ministry. That's because that's not what Jesus means by fruit. When Jesus is talking about fruit, he's not talking about the number of people or the number of dollars. When Jesus is talking about fruit, he's talking about their way of life and the fruit of the Spirit. So you don't legitimize a leader by how many people come to the event. You legitimize a leader by whether or not they're living in kindness, gentleness, patience, joy, love, self-control, all the ways of Jesus. And I just, this is where there's zero self-promotion at all. The reason why we decided to do a remnant series about the Sermon on the Mount is I am scared to death about how many people are coming to this church now. And I'm scared to death that, man, are we, are we getting like broad with our invitation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Are we clarifying the narrow road and are we clarifying with a commitment to correct doctrine? Here's what true prophets do. They have correct doctrine and they have legitimate lifestyles. They're the real deal. And I'm not saying I have a legitimate, like 100% faithful lifestyle. Please don't invite me into the, okay, we're going to look at the fruit of the spirit. We're going to evaluate how Miles is doing every day. You will see things, particularly when I drive, that you do not like, Okay. But humility is a big part of that. It's about the ability to recognize that you're broken. And my hope and my prayer is that I would be a leader with those fruit, each fruit growing in my life, but at the same time, the humility to go, y'all, I'm, I'm on my knees, on my face, along with you, asking God to do in me what only he can do. If you don't see that type of humility or that type of commitment to the true doctrine of the Bible, please stop listening to these men and women who just want to fire you up emotionally, just being honest with you. Like, be careful, the voices who you let inform you about who Jesus is. I love that it doesn't stop with the prophets, though. He goes on and talks about all of us, and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Scariest section of the whole Bible right here, y'all. Jesus is saying it's possible to confess him as Lord and it not be the true posture of your heart. It's also possible to have a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit through you, and you not really know him. Well, it's not really that you don't know him, it's that he doesn't know you. Maybe the question shouldn't be, do you know Jesus anymore? Maybe the question should be, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? Are you in an intimate relationship with him that has true communion. And what's scary is the confession is a big deal. 
You do need to confess Jesus as Lord, and saying that with your mouth is, it's awesome, it's a big deal, but Jesus goes, if that's all you have, or all that you have is a collection of miracles and good works, but you don't really know me, and I don't really know you, we're not close, you didn't really build your life on applying my word to your life. He says, depart from me. Here's a scary thought. Judas is the perfect example of someone who did both of those things. You guys know Judas called Jesus Lord often, and he did miracles? Something nobody likes to talk about. When the disciples went out, Matthew chapter 10, and they realized they had authority over evil spirits, and they're healing people, it says all of them did that. Judas, in the name of Jesus, healed people. And Jesus goes, it's not it. It's not just about saying it, and it's not just about manifesting the power It's about, are we one? Have you decided to build your life on knowing me and me knowing you? And no, it's not perfect, but it is worship. And it is me on the throne of your life. And it being unmistakable that you have dropped everything to be my follower and my disciple. And then, most haunting of all, the very end. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That word great means mega. Painful, tragic crash. This is where I have to remind you. This is how Jesus ends the sermon. There is no keyboard player behind a rock over here making the moment feel more pleasant so that it softens his words at the end to go, everyone who hears these words. There's none of that happening. There's no three points. There's no, hey, this is what I want you to do this week. We'll come back next week and talk about the next set of principles that we're going to put into place. This is not self-help adjustments for how to live a better life or live your best life now. This is Jesus going, okay, we're done. I have diagnosed the human condition, shown you the truth about what it means to walk as a member of my kingdom, and now it's up to you in this moment. And I want you to feel that. If you're in the lobby, I want you to feel that right now. So let's go there right now. If you were watching me, and I'm not not taking the place of Jesus in this moment, I just want you to feel this. If you were watching me and I said, okay, there's the sermon. If you build your life on what was just taught, it's going to sustain and flourish. But if you walk away and don't do anything with what we just taught, your life is going to fall apart, and it will fall apart with a great crash. And all you're left with is that decision. All you're left with is a dividing line and a choice. And I want you to feel how this would have felt 2,000 years ago.
go be the church. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're not ending. We're not ending. Okay, some of y'all are like, for the first time I came to ACC, I'm going to make it to brunch. Not, not the case. Um, <laughs> did y'all feel that? How awkward was that? It's like, I don't like the silence. And that is what you are left with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why we had to go there is because too many of you made your first decision to follow Jesus in an environment of emotional manipulation. You did. And it's why your commitment to him is so fragile too. Come on. We got to stop doing this, y'all. You are so sleep deprived. And they hit the right note of the right Hillsong song at just the right moment. What else were you going to do other than give your life to Jesus? How foolish do you have to be to not be in that moment? Oh, yes, God, I give you everything. The problem is your call to discipleship was never truly a call to give your life away. Jesus is going, you're one or the other. You have to decide. And he's not doing that to be abrasive. He's not doing that to only give you one way. He's not doing that just to offend. He's doing that because he has to. And so I want to bring us to this moment where at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is literally saying your life will sustain and flourish if it's built on living the way of my kingdom. But then he's also saying your life will decay and crash if it is built on anything or anyone else. This is the most important decision you will ever make. And Jesus has made it abundantly clear the outcome of this way or that way. And if you hear that and you haven't been in church long, you're probably going, Miles, do you realize that that is the most arrogant and offensive statement that has ever been uttered by a human being? You realize, think about a human being going, build your life on me, it'll sustain and flourish. Pull me out of the equation, destruction, regardless. And that is where I would say, yes. What Jesus just said is the most offensive and arrogant thing a human being could possibly say. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. Because if it's true, it reframes the entire context to see he has to say this. And so when we read it, we read it in passing. It's like, gosh, Jesus is so harsh. Like, this is, this is a brutal teaching. Who is going to be able to deal with this? But when you see it in the context of the eternal story, you go, oh, wow. This is how love protects the people of God. So if you took a video of me and my girls a couple days ago out in our neighborhood, they were both on scooters, you might call the police and call me an out-of-control angry dad. Okay? Please don't. But here's what happened. Two days ago, they're on their scooters, and they're crazy on their scooters. And at one point, you heard this, and I'm going to do as close to the original translation as I, as I possibly can. This is literally, if you could see a video, if we put a video on the screen right now of what was Miles doing two days ago, it was this exactly. Elliot, Elliot, turn around. Elliot, get over here. That is exactly what I did. I'm not overdoing that. I'm not being overdramatic. That is, that is exactly what I did. So if you saw that, and then you saw my daughter, two-year-old cute Elliot, who I wish we would have put a picture of her on the screen just to think about how, what is wrong with you, Miles? That girl is so cute. She's so fun. She likes to play on her scooter. What's the big deal? Well, we got together 
right before we went out there, and I had a talk with both of them. I said, listen, y'all are getting a little too like, brave and a little too crazy on your scooter. You need to make sure we're going to stay on the sidewalk and we're going to stay together. Well, here's what happened. Anison took a minor fall. She's so clumsy. We're praying for that. She took a minor fall, and I'm putting her shoe back on, and all of a sudden I realize Elliot is 100 miles an hour the other direction, and she is not on the sidewalk. She's on the street. And the reason why she's smart, the reason why she feels like it's safe to be on the street, is she's going down a road where there's barely ever any cars. But in the moment I looked up from being with Aniston right here, there was not one, not two, sorry, I haven't given you the full details of this yet. There were, <laughs> there were three cars coming. So you look at my response and you go, you're just an angry dad who needs to tone it down. But then you look at the context and you go, oh, based on what's actually happening all around her, that's the only rightful response for a dad who loves his child. This is what you need to understand about what Jesus is doing here. It's not just meant to be abrasive and I'm the only way to God and you got to agree with me to actually have a good life and have a meaningful life. No, no, no. This is Jesus telling us the truth. And we have to redefine truth because our culture has butchered and hijacked that word. They've taken it and made truth to mean something that's subjective based on respecting your opinion or something that's moral based on your whatever your religious set of beliefs is. There's a great book I'm reading right now. It's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Phenomenal book. I commend it to you. And it's all about redefining truth. And he says, every time you hear the word truth, you need to think of the word reality. Because truth is not about your opinion against your opinion against your opinion against your opinion. And it's not, about, it's not even about good and evil. Truth is about what's real and what's an illusion. Like, is this really true, what he's saying? I'll give you an example. If I, if I jumped off this stage right now, and Colt, we disagreed about gravity. If I said, hey, I don't believe in this whole gravity thing. It's, a, it's just a rumor of physics. I'm going to jump off this stage, and I'm just going to float to the back of the room. And you said, no, I actually paid attention in physics class. You fall at like 9.8 something squared, and, uh, and, and, and you're going to fall. Well, listen, uh, agree to disagree. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's whatever. That's what our world wants us to do as Christians. It is what it is. Here's, here's where truth becomes reality. Reality is what you run into when you find out you were wrong. So if I step off the stage and hit the ground, it's not his truth, my truth, whatever. It's no, no, no. That's real. I was under an illusion. Jesus, when he tells the story of the two houses and the two lives built on different foundations, he's literally saying one is real and one's an illusion. So this is not about one way being the right way, one way being the wrong way. This is about one real foundation and one ginormous tragic catastrophe. This is a tragedy. If you look at ancient literature, the house built on sand was actually built believing that it was on a rock. Nobody builds a house on sand going, you know, I just want a house while the weather's good and when it washes away, I got enough money for another one. No, the two builders of these houses thought they were building sustainable houses. And the house is a picture in this illustration of your life. The only difference was one loved his family, one loved his family, one was going this way, one was going this way. The only difference was one was deceived about what was under the ground. And they built their life on something that couldn't hold. And when it fell, they, they, it wasn't falling with them going, I knew this was going to happen. It was falling just like yours will if you say no to the call to discipleship with a tragedy of brokenness and a tragedy of I didn't. 
I didn't know it wasn't real. I didn't know it wasn't there. Y'all, our, our whole worldview as Christians comes down to the matchup of truth versus lies. It's all about truth versus lies. And if you build your life on things that are not actually real, you don't end up at the end going, well, I was wrong, you were right, agree to disagree. You end up with a life that doesn't sustain and doesn't matter. And so I'm, I'm just up here today begging you to open your eyes and see the invitation of Jesus. This is not a soft invitation. This is in your face. It's one or the other. But it's not that way just because Jesus wants to be mean and abrasive. It is that way because he's the ultimate reality. He said, I came to testify to the truth. I came to tell you how things really are. And what did the enemy come to do? Twist it. And some of you are giving your lives to small, slight distortions of reality. Notice what the enemy does for Adam and Eve. He doesn't tell something in the total opposite direction of what God said. He just twists it a little bit. He does the same thing for Jesus when he tempts him three times, and he's doing the same thing to you right now. He's doing it to you when he says, you, he needs to calm down. It's okay for you to just go to church and be in your Bible study and not actually ever get serious about obedience. That's a liar trying to steal your life. And there's someone on stage today, he might sound crazy, but I'm going, he's lying to you. This will not hold you. It will not sustain. Listening to the voice of God means obeying the word of God. And if you hear the voice of Jesus today, the message is so simple. Build your life on treasuring the scriptures. Build your life on knowing Jesus personally. And I'm telling you, it will lead to the satisfaction of your soul. It'll lead to the best story for your family. And it'll lead to an eternity of pleasures that are at the right hand of God forevermore. This is living, y'all. And Jesus wants this so bad for us, but he can't make you see through the lie without submission and surrender. He's trying to open your eyes. I believe the Holy Spirit is in this place trying to open some people's eyes. Here's the question. No points today. This is the end of the sermon. The question is this. What will you do in response to Jesus? That's the only question that's left to be asked, right? It's the call to discipleship. But I want you to notice the two words underlined, you and do. This message is not about somebody else who you wish was here hearing the sermon. It's about you. And it's not even about what you believe or what you ascribe to. It's about what will you do. So all throughout that passage, you're hearing the same command repeated again and again and again. It literally means do or obey. When Jesus said, the one who practices these things, and he said, the teacher who bears fruit, and he said, in the, the true disciples, the one who does the will of my father, that's the same word in Greek. And it literally means obey. Do it. Do it. So the question, cross the table to everyone in the room and everyone in the lobby right now. What will you do? What will you, just you, in response to Jesus' invitation to build your life on the one thing that will sustain. It's a daily decision, like I said. But all week long, I've felt the pressure of this moment because I know there's some people deciding in real time. There's some people who thought they decided when they prayed a prayer and now they read that the prayer didn't have a magical power to it. Only surrender to the Holy Spirit has the power. So I was like, what am I gonna say at the end when I ask that question? What will you do? And I'm like, that could talk about the fact that your life's going to end, but at the end of the day, I can't get past the fact that Jesus just walked off. Biggest moment, biggest decision of their lives, lays it out there and walks off. 
I'm like, dude, how little do you have to care about these people? Not to stand up there jumping up and down going, please listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. I'm trying to make sure you don't ruin your life. I'm like, I got to do something more than that. Then I realize why Jesus was able to go sit down. He was able to go sit down because he knows that the call to discipleship never starts with someone calling on God. It always starts with Jesus calling us. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one comes to me unless my Father gives them to me. So this is mysterious, and it has to do with the sovereignty of God. But if you're here today, and every word of what I'm saying, talking about building your life on Jesus, sounds like a sacrifice that you don't really want to make, sounds harder than what you really want to get into, but at the same time, you know in your heart of hearts that you're not gonna give your life to anything else. You know you wouldn't waste it built on lies. You know he's got you. You know he's got you even when you don't want him to have you. Here's what's great about it. That call to discipleship is an effectual call that every single time he calls your name and says, come follow me, and you say, I will, he turns around and says, you only will because I will. You will because I opened your eyes. So the pressure's off me in this moment. Some of you, your eyes are open and it's not because of my presentation. It's because the Holy Spirit said, it's time to stop wasting your life. And others of you, you don't care. You just want me to stop talking. I get it. I'm praying that God softens your heart. But there's a group in this room who you know that even if you tried to walk away from the call of God for your life, you couldn't because you would be miserable. That's not a reminder of your shame. That's a reminder of your identity. I know I'm going long, but don't miss this. The call to discipleship is about a new priority, but it's also about a new identity. You're a child of God. And if you act like something other than a child of God, you know who will remind you that you're still a child of God? The Holy Spirit who speaks from within you, testifying with your spirit that you're a child of God. Romans chapter eight. You know what the Holy Spirit will say? Hey, you're miserable this morning, right? It's because this is not who you are. Hey, you're, you're going back to this again? You know, you know it's gonna end in the same, okay. Well, it's not who you are and I'll make you miserable on the back end. God's got this whole thing rigged. And the good news today is that you couldn't leave even if you wanted to. But that does not negate our responsibility to surrender in the here and now as the people of God. So right here, right now, what will you do in response to Jesus? If you find it in and of yourself to fall on your face and surrender, you do that. We can turn this area into an altar. I don't know if we can do that in the lobby. If it means standing and singing, I don't know. But all we want to do is respond by proclaiming the worthiness of who Jesus is. Let's stand to our feet all over this place. Band's going to come up here. Choir's going to come up here. And I just want us to stay in this moment, y'all. There are people whose eyes are being opened for the very first time. And there are some of you who thought you had it and now the Holy Spirit is going, I've got you, you're mine. Let me pray in this moment. Heavenly Father, do what you do. Say things that only you can say. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You said, I am, I am, I am. And God, we just wanna project your praise back to you saying, yes, you are. You alone are God in heaven. You alone are worthy of every ounce of worship we have in our bodies. You alone are worthy of the sacrifice of discipleship. So God, just take it all. Take the fact that there are things in me as the preacher right now that I don't want to give to you. 
there are things in me that I want to hold on to. And I know thousands of others within the sound of my voice are right there. But Jesus, you're worth so much more. So would you shut up every lie that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? As the praise of the great I am goes up, would you make the demons flee at the mention of your name? Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are enough. And you alone are our pursuit and our portion. We sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, church, let's go.